early in the spring when we round up the dogie. We mark them and brand them and bob off their tails. Round up the horses, load up the chuck wagon, then send the dogies out on the long trail. We'll be tired, I owe long, you little dogie. It's your misfortune and none of mine. They had not gone far when they came upon the three Kaisers and their captive. A young boy, perhaps 15 or 16, was stripped naked to the waist and bound right to a chestnut, tight to a chestnut sapling. Three men were lounging about the tree making fun of him. The brother called Buck had his sleeves rolled up and his shirt open, showing a thick fleece of red hair on his chest and forearms. He was laughing and cracking a lash of plaited cow hide thongs. The boy tied to the tree said not a word in answer to Buck's taunting questions. He made no sound at all. He did not look up when Mrs. Blake came swishing through the bushes. For all he had set his teeth tight together, she could see his lower jaw trembling. Now that little prelude to brutality is uh, from Willa Cather's final novel, published in 1940, called Safira and the Slave Girl. And that's what I'm going to talk about uh, in this episode. Now Willa Cather's novels, as you know, if you've been following this series and my previous series, tend to deal with uh, the West. They are often set in places like Nebraska or Colorado. They'd often deal with the interactions between uh, the frontier and some kind of home society. Even her Shadows on the Rock, which deals with French Canada, is really about the kind of the relationship of that culture to the homeland culture. Uh, we, we went to uh, New Mexico with, with, uh, um, with, in, in Death Comes for the Archbishop. Um, so... We often, we're often there, right? And Willa Cather, as far as I know, maybe in some of the short fiction, which I haven't read yet, there, there's, uh, I think there's two more novels and a bunch of short stories and, and a few collections in a third volume of Willa Cather's work by the Library of America. But in the stuff I've read, I've never seen her tackle the question of slavery. Most of her novels aren't set. None of her novels really are set in the East. Um, we revisit a few times in some of her stories. Um, but this, this novel is, is different in that way. It's, it doesn't really run over the same ground that her other novels did. It, it's set in the antebellum period in Virginia, and it's set basically on one, I don't want to say plantation, but they do have a, this family has a significant number of slaves. It's set on a, in a mill, right? And so that's where this slaveholding family makes its money. And the heart of this novel is, is the sexual politics in, in that type of household, right? Where you have uh, a white family. Um, in this case, it's really just this wife, Sophia, her husband, um, and, and their widowed daughter, Mrs. Blake. That's basically the, you know, there's some other white characters here, but most of the characters we run into are, are African-American slaves. And the heart of the novel is the sexual tension that exists in this kind of environment. So um, we'll talk about the two characters, Safira and the slave girl, uh, first. Now, Safira is a aging, old, older woman. Uh, she's kind of in a, the marriage she's in is kind of aloof. She married below her status. She's, uh, she married this miller. Um, and the mill does well. I mean, it's able to sustain a significant population of slaves. But, you know, she was more from the upper class, but she, she had to marry down. Uh, and, and she's not really happy about that. Their marriage is kind of, seems kind of loveless. In fact, the, the, the miller 
His name's Henry, by the way. So it's Henry Colbert. Safira Colbert is his wife. He spends most of the, the novel like in the mill, and he actually kind of has his own separate household there, his own interactions with the slave there. And Safira deals with the slaves and then, you know, kind of in the big house. And she's, she's obviously very unhappy. She's sort of dying of some weird disease that's kind of like souped up water retention or something. And she's, she's not long for this world. She, she's not very mobile. You know, she has to go kind of sit in the chair all the time. And so she spends a lot of her time, you know, berating slaves and investigating their lives and being kind of nosy with that. And, and you know, it's the kind of things you expect. And she's very, very comfortable with slavery. She uh, enjoys the power that the institution gives her. She's not very sympathetic to the slaves at all. That's not true of Henry. Henry kind of married into these, this. These slaves come from Safira. He, didn't, he wasn't uh, a slave owner, it seems, before the, the marriage. He, of course, goes along with it. He doesn't you know, free his slaves. Um, you know, he would have the power to do, because in those days, uh, property brought in by the, by the wife was, was property of the husband. That's, at least that's what I think. Um, and I think at one point he does say he could free the slaves, but you know, he's not going to. So, but yeah, he's a bit uncomfortable with, with slavery. Um, so there's a bit of tension there. They just kind of start living their own separate lives. Now their daughter, Rachel Colbert Blake, is, is I think she's in her 30s, uh, and she's widowed. Uh, her husband died sometime before, and she's more vocally anti-slavery based on our experiences. And her, her backstory is given in this relatively short novel, and we learn how she came to despise slavery. So Sophia is kind of like the, the one person in this family who was really, really invested in, in this institution of slavery. And she's, she's, I mean, she's basically the cruelest character in the, in the story. So... Now, the slave girl, she's, her name is not given in the title. Um, it is in the novel, though. Her, her name is Nancy. Her, she is the product of, uh, well, her mother is, is a woman named Till, who also works at the mill. And we're in that mill household. I think she, she works closely with Safira. She, she was raped at some point, so we don't, we're never told who the father is. It's assumed she knows, <clears throat> Till knows, but she never tells Nancy. So Nancy is, is biracial. And um, we can go in again and get the uh, into the into the color line and and how it affected and how important it was for African American writers in the in the early twentieth century. We, I did a Harlem Renaissance series way very very early in this series, right? And we talked a lot about the color line and how important it was for African American writers at the time. Um, uh, we. I might look at some like Lafcadio Hearn's writings about the Caribbean and Louisiana and these places. And, and there you see the color line very important as well in, in even creating status between slaves. Of course, in the U.S., you know, you had kind of the, so the slave status was passed on through the mother, right? So it didn't really matter how much white blood you had. Um, but, you know, kind of the, the mythology is biracial girls were, uh, I would say this is a stereotype, right? The Jezebel stereotype. There's a character here named Jezebel who isn't of the Jezebel stereotype at all. She's a much older African-born woman. But the, the kind of the, the stereotype of the Jezebel is like a biracial, um, promiscuous woman, you know, who, who often will have sex with white men and, and, and have biracial children of her own. That kind of character, uh, 
is that, that kind of stereotype in the backdrop. Nancy's not that, obviously. Nancy's actually a very, uh, is, is nothing like the Jezebel stereotype. But here's the plot point. There, this, is, this is what happens in the sexual politics of a slave household like this. Nancy worked mostly in the mill and mostly spent most of her time in the mill. And Henry Colbert really likes her. And not really in a romantic way. I don't see any evidence that he was kind of, you know, creeping on her. Um, in my reading of it, he seemed just to like her and was comfortable with her and, and wanted her to like make his bed in the mill and, and help him out there. So he spent a lot of time there. And you can imagine what Safira is thinking. She hears conversations among her slaves that she misinterprets, you know, about the relationship between Henry and, and Nancy. And eventually you get uh, this delusion in her mind that Nancy is is having sex, seducing Henry, or Henry is having sex with Nancy, raping her, I guess it was, would be, although it's not happening, right? There's, there's no rape between Henry and Nancy. Um, there's none in the novel at all, except the implied one of Till, the one that's the one that backdrop, Till and, and Nancy's father. But there's a lot of threat of it, and a lot of talk about it, and a lot of, like, the sexual politics of the slave household overshadows this whole novel. And I think that's what his value is. I think that's why people will find this novel interesting to look at. Um, so as, as Safira gets more and more convinced that Nancy is in this relationship with her husband, she tries to get rid of her. She tries to sell her off and, and kind of Henry forbids it, doesn't want that to happen. Um, she, she kind of starts to treat her in stranger ways and eventually what she does, and this is what really brings about the crisis, is she invites her, like, like her nephew, I think it is. Is it from her side? I think, I think it's the nephew from, no, it's the nephew from, the, from her husband's side. It's Martin Colbert is his name. So she basically invites this guy over knowing he's basically a rapist and a creep. Um, she bring, and because and Nancy's like the prettiest thing on the, on, on, in the household, I suppose. So he brings her, brings this guy to, to live with them. And immediately this Martin starts to sexually harass Nancy pretty excessively, um, pretty obviously. And there's like even Safira helps arrange like time alone between Martin and Nancy, like out in the woods. It's like she's basically trying to get Nancy raped by, by Martin because of this hatred she feels towards her. Um, and this then, when this gets out, and, and actually Nancy takes this to, um, well, first it kind of, it, it gets to Henry's attention to a slave named Sampson, and it gets to um, Rachel Colbert Blake, the, the widowed daughter, it gets to her ears through Nancy, I think. So then basically uh, Rachel, with some other abolitionist help, get her, speared her away on the Underground Railroad. And that's the novel. And then we see the aftermath of what happens after she leaves and, and some kind of, kind of epilogue 25 years later where she comes back and visits her, uh, you know, the, the mill where she was born and, and where she was raised. So that's, that's more or less the plot. Um, it's a quite short novel, like many of Willa Cather's later novels. It's, it's a little bit longer than Lucy Gayhart, but not by much. It's, it's probably... It's less than 150 pages or so in the Library of America edition. I think the Wikipedia entry gave it at, at, at 200 and some, but that's that old style. That's the original edition, right? And they, they didn't print as many words on pages back in those days as they, as they do now. So yeah, it's a quick read, probably a, 
There's no audiobook of this, unfortunately, but I guess it's not public domain, so LibriVox hasn't got at it. Or, I mean, there, there probably is an audiobook, but you have to, uh, you know, audible it or something. It's not, not freely available. Um, but it would only be like four hours or so if, if, uh, to, to listen to or, in, or to read it. You basically can read it in one study, like a lot of these novels. So um, let's go into a little bit more detail here. All right, book one is called Saphir and Her Household. Little Catherine's back. Still using books instead of chapters uh, for these novels, but these, these books are essentially chapters. They're super short. Uh, this is our introduction to the, to the mill uh, in his household, and, and, and we start with our introductions to Henry and Saphira, and then uh, and some of the other family, Rachel, is introduced too. Um, and then slowly we learn more about the slaves. So we get kind of a top-down description of the, of the household. Um, some of the major slaves, uh, I already talked about the Colbert household a bit too much. Uh, this, the slave Nancy, of course, we've, we've met Till, is Nancy's mother. She was raped. Uh, she, her essential husband, kind of slave husband, is, is Uncle, Uncle Jeff is his name. And he's, he's kind of, it's suggested he's kind of impotent. He's not, um, you know, for what it's worth. Um, Fat Lizzie, Old Jezebel, these are other slaves that are introduced. Old Jezebel is maybe the most interesting. She dies uh, before the novel ends. Um, and she's, she's African-born. She's the one African-born slave. So we got to remember that even late into the antebellum period, and even at the time of the Civil War itself, you had a fair number, I think it was like 1%, maybe at the time of the Civil War, uh, who were African-born. Um, so the slave trade ends uh, in 1808. Uh, under the presidency of Thomas Jefferson. This was written into the Constitution. Remember, part of the compromise of the Constitution between the slave states and the states that were moving away from slavery was that the slave trade would not be interfered with by Congress until, I think it was 20 years after the ratification of the Constitution. And so that was 1808, and, and Jefferson was president when Congress did pass that law, and, it, and that ended the slave trade. So there was still some smuggling, so... That's one reason you had some African-born enslaved men and women in the United States was smuggling, right? Like the Amistad case was a case of smuggling. And there was that, uh, that guy Lincoln executed for smuggling and slaves, if you remember when we did that series on Lincoln. Um, but, uh, you know, there was a lot of importing of slaves in those 20-year periods as slaveholders realized that they weren't going to, you know, import slaves anymore from that time forward and so a lot were brought in and old Jezebel was one of these um, people uh, brought into the slave trade uh, before it was abolished and so a lot of those people you know would have been old but still alive at the time of the Civil War so those are the that I think it was about one percent of slave enslaved enslaved men and women were were African born at the time so at the time of the Civil War, and this is a little bit old before that. So, you know, it's just an interesting aspect. You know, we, we think of, certainly it's true that, you know, after the American Revolution, these communities of enslaved men and women became much more Americanized, right? Um, in, the, in their culture and their identity and their experience. And this is why the colonization efforts were so preposterous and, and kind of silly and, and certainly racist. Well, it's because that these people, you know, weren't of Africa. They were, they were of America. 
um, with 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 few exceptions. But it is just a it's a, it's part of of Black Americana is these African-born slaves in the at the you know late and antebellum period. So um, yeah, we meet them. Uh, let, let's get the image of Nancy because she is going to play such a key role, and she does play such a key role in this novel. How she's described. Um, Quote, Mrs. Blake sat watching Nancy's slender, nimble hands, so flexible that one would say there was no hard bones in them at all. They seemed compressible like a child's. They were just a shade darker than her face. If her cheeks were pale gold, her hands were what Mrs. Blake called old gold. She was considering Nancy's case as she sat there. The red marks of the hairbrush were still on the girl's right arm, wondering how much she grieved over the way things were. Nancy had fallen out of favor with her mistress. Everyone knew it. And no one knew why. Self-respecting Negroes never complained of harsh treatment. They made a joke of it and laughed about it amongst themselves, as the rough mountain boys did to the lickings they got at school. Nancy had not been trained to humility. Until lately, Mrs. Colbert had shown her marked favoritism, giving her pretty clothes and set off her pretty face, and liked to have her in attendance when she had guests or drove abroad. End quote. So, yeah, obviously she's pretty. I think it's, it's clear she's the, the prettiest uh, woman on, in the household. Um, and there she kind of fell out of favor, right? Then because she was pretty, she was a showpiece, a trophy for, for gatherings and things. But of course, we know what happened to change things. Um, Mrs. Blake doesn't know. The daughter, Rachel, doesn't quite know yet. But, you know, it, it's, it's because she's, she's kind of heard it through the grapevine. She's heard rumors or she misinterpreted things she's heard to suggest that her, her husband is having sex with, with Nancy. Um, the nature of Sephiria is described at great length at the end of this book, or towards the end of this, no, if I'm more towards the middle of this chapter, this book, um, over about three or four pages. But really the emphasis of this section is that she is really of the upper class. Um, you know, she comes from a place where no one had fewer than five slaves, for instance. And we got to remember that the vast majority of Southerners didn't own slaves. And most slave owners just owned a few. So if you're in a place where pretty much everyone had more than five slaves, that's like the super elite. That's like living in a gated community nowadays or, you know, being surrounded by millionaires and billionaires. Uh, her younger sisters married off. So she was the, the last in the family to marry off. And, um, you know, I guess her, her, her more humble um, features, I guess, kept her from be getting the marriage she wanted. Um, I also think her attitude maybe has something to do with it. She's not the nicest person, in, uh, to be sure. But uh, she has to end up marrying down, and she resents this. And part of that resentment is her family's resentment carried over to her. Quote, when Safira announced her engagement, the family friends were more astonished than if she had declared her intention of marrying the gardener. They quizzed the Negro servants, who declared that Mr. Henry had never been so much as asked into the parlor. They never caught him talking to Miss Safi outside her father's room, much less courting him. After all these years, the strangeness of this marriage still came up in conversations with old friends got together. Fat Lizzie, the cook, had whispered to the neighbors back, uh, back, uh, back creek. Folk back home says it seems like Missy, Mr. Henry, was scarcely acquainted before the wedding, nor very closely acquainted ever since. Him being kept so close to the mill, she would uh, add suavely. Um, since she did marry Henry, it was not hard to explain why Sophia had moved away from her native country, where his plain manners, his calling, vague ancestry, even his Lutheran connections would have made her social position rather awkward. Um, and it goes on with this uh, for 
for quite a lot, quite a few pages. But it just it gives the foundation of why she is going to be resentful towards her husband to begin with, because he's basically not providing the life that, that she wanted and she would have wanted, um, which is common enough. We see that all the time in, in marriages, um, certainly between class marriages, but even people who are like of the middle class who don't, you know, who marry someone from the working class and don't really aren't prepared for maybe a change in status. Can't think of any other literary examples of this, but it's here. It's, it's certainly here. Um, book two is called Nancy and Till, and it's not fully about uh, this relationship. We already kind of get the, the Nancy Till relationship in the first chapter, um, but we we really hear this is where the rumors about Nancy and Henry really start floating around. We see Henry fighting with Safira over Nancy and over her future because she doesn't, you know, of course. She wants to separate. Safira wants to separate Nancy and Henry, and Henry doesn't want to. Um, he responds to her at one point, Of course the blacks on this place belong to you, and I've never interfered with your management of them. But I warn you, Safira, that I will not have any of the wenches coming down to the mill. I don't mean to break in another girl. Nancy is quiet and quick. She knows how I want things and puts them the way I want. I must ask you to spare her to me for a little while every morning. And that's the nature of the relationship. She's essentially his maid in the mill uh, and a, a little bit of a helper for him while he's working every day. And, you know, he's saying, I don't want a new one. Of course, in Safira's mind, he wants her there because of uh, sexual reasons. But that doesn't seem to be the case. I don't, I don't see evidence of that in this, in this novel. I think it's really a, a misunderstanding, kind of emerging out of Safira's delusions about... Things. And I think it's just, in, this is something that's at the heart of the sexual politics of, of these master-slave households, right? It, it must have happened all the time, right? This jealousy. We, we know, because all these biracial children were being born out of slavery, that masters were commonly raping their, their slaves. Um, and maybe to some degree, slaves use sexuality to, to get favors or to improve their status or as a form of resistance, a, for a survival strategy, whatever. Um, that certainly happened as well. Um, but the result of that had to have been like jealousy. And it's such a perverse, this master-slave relation is so perverse. The way Jefferson said it was, it requires absolute submission on the one, absolute dominance on the other, right? How can you read that sentence? And I'm not quoting exactly, but it's close to that. How can you read that sentence and not, not think of how he was having sex with Sally Hemings for, for years, right? Um, Maybe it's a little bit of a perverse reading of that quote, but you know it, it's hard for me to get it out of my mind. Um, and these these households must have been just awash with jealousy over these things and violence. They tried to uh, dramatize this in that movie Twelve Years a Slave, which is a quite good movie. I do. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's worth checking out. Uh, but there you have a, a situation where a master is repeatedly raping one of his slaves, driving her to. To kind of madness, uh, the climax of the movie is this vicious, brutal, uh, near deadly whipping of of this girl, um, and it's this weird sexual rage that the master goes into. But then you also have at the same time she's being costed and beaten and 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 traumatized by the master's you know wife because she. Uh, because she she thinks it's it's all her fault. It's all the slave girl's fault for for like seducing her husband. It's 
really, really weird stuff. But again, it must have been very, very common at the heart of these complex um, households. So, anyways. Uh, as obviously, it's not hard to see that Henry's going to prefer isolation than being with this woman who's constantly nagging him about, about this... Um, about Nancy, who's a slave that he didn't even buy, right? These are these are Saphir's slaves brought into the household. Um, he doesn't do enough, I will say. I'm not going to defend him entirely. He doesn't do enough to... He, he kind of accepts slavery. He has his internal reservations about it, but you know he doesn't ever talk about liberating the slaves. Uh, book three is called Old Jezebel, and that's largely her story. And we get her background story, which I already sort of told you. It's kind of fascinating, but we also get... Uh, Henry's views on slavery stated most explicitly in this chapter, um, quote, Henry Colbert knew he had a legal right to manumit any of his wife's Negroes, but that would be an outrage to her feelings and an injustice to the slaves themselves. Where would they go? Where would they live? He had never learned to take care of, they never learned to take care of themselves or to provide for tomorrow. They were part of the Deuterich property and of Deuterich household. Of all the Negro men on the place, Samson, his head hill man, head mill hand, was the one who might be able to get work and make a living out in the world. He was a tall, straight mulatto with good continence, thoughtful, intelligent. His head was full beyond the ear, shaped more like a melon lying down than a peanut standing on end. Colbert trusted Samson's judgment and believed he could get a place for him among the Quaker mills in Philadelphia. He had considered buying Samson from Saphir and sending him to Pennsylvania as a free man. Um, and he actually tried this. So he does have on his mind how he could maybe free some of these slaves, but at the end of the day, he just doesn't really, he's racist enough to not believe that they, they're capable of, of living in freedom, which of course was a common idea in the Old South. Okay, and then um, book four, we, it's called Sophia's Daughter. This is about Rachel and her whole backstory. Um, and basically this is about how she learns to, to hate slavery over the, over the years. Partially this comes from the interaction with, with people, abolitionists and people who are, you know, want to see slavery end. Partially it comes out of her experiences observing um, slavery throughout her life. And we get a lot of those stories. We also get the story of her marriage um, to, and, and how that, that marriage ended. Obviously she was a widow. Okay, and then we, we get a story of when Rachel was 12 and she overheard a conversation which kind of really led her to hate slavery. And basically the conversation is, is about um, buying a girl, a slave girl named um, Mandy, you know, who's a young, a, young, a young woman. I don't know if we get her age really, but it's, she's young. And, but her mother's still in the plantation. So basically this, and then on the conversation, one person says like, well, maybe we can just rent her or hire her. It's like, no, they want to sell her. And essentially, it's about breaking up a family, right? Of course, everyone who knows anything about slavery knows how common breaking up families were, um, especially between mothers and children. Husbands and wives were broken up pretty commonly. So, you know, this, this really affected her view on slavery from a very, very young age. And so she was never comfortable with slavery in her family. And she, as she got older, she became a, a full-blown abolitionist. Right, so that's that's what book four is mostly about. It's it's this background of of of, of Rachel, and and her views on slavery. So we, we we have two out of the three Colberts living on this mill hating slavery. Um, book five is Martin Colbert. So this is 
the the effort that Safira orchestrates to essentially get Nancy raped by uh, her her nephew. It's actually her nephew from her husband's side, though. And as soon as he comes, as soon as he arrives in the plantation, he begins sexually harassing poor Nancy. Like one of his first conversations with her is, anyone ever tell you you're a damn pretty girl, Nancy? She replies, no, sir. Martin would have done better to change his tone, but he did not see her face and went on teasingly. You're trying to make me believe none of you, none of these country jakes around here have been making up to you. You can't fool me. There's good, kind folks on Bad Creek, Mrs. Martin. You don't say, honey, Martin laughed, stretching his loose shoulders. Nancy did not like his laugh at all. She took up the armful of coats and trousers, snatched up a pile of soiled linens outside the door, and vanished so quickly that when the young man turned from throwing a cigar out the window, he was amazed to find her gone. And this goes on for a while, and, and eventually gets it in his mind to, to rape her, right? This assumption of, of white men in power in the South that they have... You know, that, that they're liked by these enslaved women, that they have sexual access to them, right? Um, and he has that, that, that concept of privilege, to be sure. And, and really, it gets really scary for a moment when, you know, it's basically arranged that she's going to go on this, this ride out into the woods with her on some kind of task, and she's going to go with him, basically be alone with him for, for hours in the woods. And, and that's almost going to guarantee a a rape. And that's what drives Nancy to seek out help. And who does she get help from? Well, she gets help from, from the one woman who might support her, you know, in the household. She doesn't feel comfortable talking to, to Henry about it, but it's, it's Rachel. And Rachel does agree to, to help her first by stopping the, this, these dangerous moments, these, these dangerous encounters between her and and, and Martin, and eventually, when it becomes impossible to find an alternative, she agrees to help her escape. But that's going to be later in the novel. Um, book six is called Samson Speaks to the Master. Samson is the, he's, from Henry's point of view, he's the most valuable slave uh, in, on the mill because he's the head worker on the mill. So he, you know, he does the actual, most of the actual work, and he's the, He's a man in a position of some power among the other the slaves on the mill because of his, his skill. He's the one person, remember, that, that Henry thought he could have got a good job for, like up in Philly somewhere. It's Samson who approaches um, Henry about Nancy, right? And, and he, he gives the whole um, story as best as he knows it. So it's been... This threat to Nancy's been filtering through the grapevine, to be sure. Um, and here's, what does he say? Uh, he says, I'm worried about Nancy. And the miller looked up and frowned, worries her? What do you mean? How worries her? Well, sir, you know how them young fellows is. They likes to fool around a pretty girl, even if she's colored. I don't say he means no harm, but she ain't used to them ways as she seems kind of scared all the time. I know you wouldn't want to see harm fall her. Shut that door behind you, Samson, and tell me if you've seen anything amiss. Not rightly speaking, sir, but a while back, Nancy was picking cherries in one of them big trees behind the smokehouse. Me and Jeff was in the smokehouse, and we heard him holler like she was hurt or something. We both ran out and see Mrs. Martin standing at the foot of the tree. Before we come, he's been standing on that, on that chair Nancy took to climb up with. I've seen the mud off the boots and the, and the chair bottom. The gal was scared for sure, Mr. Henry. She was trembling like a leaf... And taken sick like. 
And so this is the story he tells. And, and you know, Henry does take some command. He doesn't just dodge the issue. He does want to get rid of Martin by the end of this chapter. And he, he kind of commits to working to get rid of, of this horrible influence. Um, but actually, the real initiative comes from, comes from Rachel and Nancy and these other abolitionists who, in book seven, it's called Nancy's Flight, arrange uh, Nancy's escape via the Underground Railroad. Because basically all, all Henry really does is, even at the end of that chapter, Samson speaks to the master. He just sort of says, like, I'll keep an eye on Martin, or he definitely wants to get rid of Martin. He doesn't like him being there, but he's not really taking charge of that, right? So I think um, there's a big difference here in the strategies. And I think you have, of course, Safira, who's totally loyal to slavery. You have people like Henry who condoned or accepted and maybe criticized slavery, but weren't really willing to stand up to do something to right this horrible wrong. And then you had people like Rachel who were willing to take direct action. So I think the one value in this novel is in describing the sexual politics of the plantation. Um, that is a really strong point in the story. But I think another one is, is when we talk about strategies towards oppression or strategies towards injustice. Um, you have, of course, people who benefit and profit from injustice and, and, and enjoy it and like that injustice or, or fully support it or think it's, it's, it's just. You have people uh, who, you know, essentially have privilege, right? He, Henry may not like slavery, but he gets slaves out of it and he gets work out of it and he gets to have a profitable mill because of it. Maybe not super profitable, but he gets a living out of it. Uh, he gets to have a, a pretty girl make his bed every day and... and take care of his needs, he certainly benefits from it. So there's a limit to how far he's willing to go to really tear down the system, right? And then you have someone like Rachel who potentially could have benefited from the system, but, you know, she, she doesn't really doesn't that much though, but she is willing certainly to risk herself or risk her reputation, risk her, her, her you know, what she's doing is illegal. So she was risking her, her life in a variety of ways uh, to free, to liberate a young woman from this, horrendous situation she was in. So I think as a, as a kind of a mapping of, of strategies and the, the need for direct action, the need for people who are willing to um, challenge the law, challenge unjust systems directly through what they do, not just think about, you know, that's basically what Henry does. He thinks about how bad slavery is. He thinks about what he might like to do. He maybe talks a little bit about it, but at the end of the day, he works every day at the mill and he's not really that interested in, in going farther behind that. So Henry's not a horrible person, but he's certainly not anyone, he's not a person who's going to be liberating anybody or, or taking any steps to ending slavery. Um, the chapter on Nancy's flight, book seven, you know, it's, it is what it is. It's, it's just um, the scene of how she, she gets out. There's not that much interesting in it. A little bit of an action scene, if you will. Um, book eight, The Dark Autumn, is really about the aftermath of this event of Nancy's flight, and we got to remember when slaves ran away, it did affect things, you know, especially on households that have a small number of slaves. They couldn't maybe afford to lose the labor of, of one, um, or these were close relationships. Slaves and masters knew each other's lives quite intimately. All right, they, they lived together, you know, I guess less so on the big plantations where you had hundreds of slaves, but for most, most slave owners had fewer than five slaves. So they would have had these very close relationships with their, the, 
these men and women that they owned. Um, and so the flight of one would have been a major event in, in the lives of these people. And that's what we're to we learn in book eight, you know, that it wasn't a small thing, right? Now, the big thing that, the big impact this has on Rachel is Rachel's essentially kicked out of the household for this. And it breaks up that relationship between this family and their daughter, right? So that's, that's the cost, that's the price that Rachel has to pay is her isolation from her, her family. And uh, we also see the impact of, of her running away on people like Till, uh, her mother, and, and other Henry a little bit, and other people in the, in the household. And our final kind of conversation with Henry is really him looking forward almost to her death. Uh, Catherine writes, he never understood his wife very well, but he had always been proud of her. When she was young, she was fearless and independent. She held her head high and made this millhouse a place where town folk liked to come. After she was old and ill, she never lowered her flag, not even now when she knew the end was not far off. She had seen strong men quail and whimper at the approach of death. He himself dreaded it. He, but as he leaned against the chair with his face hidden, he knew how it would be with her. She would make her death easy for everyone because she would meet it with that composure, which he had sometimes called heartlessness, but which now seemed to him strength. As long as she was conscious, she would be mistress of the situation and of herself." Kind of a weird way to kind of find last moment love for one's wife is through her kind of her, the, her grace in dying, her grace in a, in a slow, de, you know, facing a degenerate disease, you know, how she is still able to put up airs about that. Um, but definitely the, we don't see Henry making any, he doesn't have a character arc that leads her towards Rachel's point of view. She doesn't, he doesn't really stand up for Rachel. He just kind of goes to the mill and works and does what he does. So he's, his character is a bit of a, um, a struggle to deal with because he, he, you know, on the one hand, he doesn't seem that bad and, and he is uncomfortable with slavery, but he's not really willing to do much. He's, he's a very passive person and, and you know, that's, just, that's just it. I mean, it's really, Samson brings this news about, Nan, about Nancy to him. Nancy brings this news of what's happening to her to Rachel. We see who acted and it, and it certainly wasn't Henry. So then we get an epilogue. The epilogue's uh, book, it's called it's book nine, Nancy's Return. Epilogue, 25 years later. Um, the first part of it is, is from the narrator's point of view, just saying, uh, you know, who died in the war, you know, how the war impacted the, the mill and all that. Then, well, then part two is uh, first person narration. And it's, I'm not even sure who it is. I don't think it's a character we met. Well, it may be the same narrator. It, the, 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 the point of view shifts to first person. And we got this little note by Willa Cather at the end of this story. But first, we, we listen to the narrator talk about different encounters with uh, these people, Till, Nancy, uh, Mrs. Blake, and others after, after the Civil War. This is what Willa Cather writes yeah, in the, at the end. In this story, I've called several of the characters by Frederick Country surnames, but in no case here have I used the name of a person whom I ever knew or saw. My father and mother, when they came home from Winchester or Cape on Springs, often talked about acquaintances whom they had met. The names of these unknown persons sometimes have a lively fascination with me, merely as names. Mr. Haymarket, Mr. Bywaters, Mr. Householder, Mr. Tinball, Miss Snap. For some reasons, I found the name of Mr. Pertiball especially delightful, though I never saw the man who bore it, and to this day, I don't know how to spell it. And essentially, it seems Willa Cather heard this story 
and is retelling it at some point later, you know, in, well, 1940, she's retelling this. So that the narration at the end kind of shifts to a first person Lilla Cather narration, at least that's what it seems. So um, anyways, that's kind of my summation, my overall review of Sophia and the Slave Girl. Uh, as over, overall thoughts, I, you know, at first it wasn't my, I didn't care for it that much, maybe. That's actually that tends to happen when I do these series on one author. Like, it gets a little reading the same author's words gets a little uh, tedious after a while when you go through a hundred pages, a thousand pages or so. But coming back and taking my notes on it and thinking more about the novel, I, I came to to appreciate it a lot more, largely because of uh, you know I caught right away the the sexual politics of it all, and that's something you know you know from reading history, so it wasn't new to me. But it was kind of a, a nice different point of view on that and a good story based on that. But I, when I came back and started thinking about this, taking notes, I was much more struck by the, the like, I paid more attention to characters like Henry and Rachel and their different strategies and how both are, both have different effects in how they deal with this Nancy Martin Colbert crisis. And I think Will Cather is actually making a political point here about the necessity of something like direct action, or even if she's not, she is inadvertently getting there uh, because that's what's effective is direct action. The mealy mouth kind of liberal, uh, I'd like to help you if I could, you know, but you know, I'd have to get out of my chair. That, that's obviously not going to be very effective. Right. So I like that about this novel. Uh, I like the effort Cather gives into going into the, this, this community of enslaved men and women to some degree. She spends about half the novel actually trying to explore these different slaves and their relationships with one another and their experiences. Um, it could have been more developed. It could have been a much longer novel than, than we got if it would go into more uh, detail into what this life was like. But as it is, it's a very short read. It's a little quick look at the crisis in this one young girl's life and how it led to her freedom via the help of the Underground Railroad and, and other people in her life. So in that way, it's a nice story. So yeah, I encourage you to check it out. Um, don't, if you're, if like, like me, I was getting kind of, Tired of reading Little Catherine. Looking forward to the next series, what commonly happens. And I, I kind of didn't give it the full appreciation the first time I read it. So I, I think it's worth, in looking back on it, I think it's worth um, the time to, to study. So um, that's going to do it with this series on Willow Cather. Um, you know, we're going to come back to Willow Cather at some point. Uh, I don't have the third volume of Willow Cather's writings. I know it has, uh, I'm not, what? Uh, some of her short story collections are in it. Uh, I think there's one more novel. There's one more novel that wasn't included in either of the first two collections. And then we got her stories. We got some of her fiction or nonfiction writing as well in that. So I'll try to, let's see if I can find what books are there. Um, Alexander's Bridge. Um, Youth in the Bright Medusa uh, and her other stories. Yeah, her art of fiction, I think, is in there, which is her, her, one of her nonfiction pieces. So I'm not sure what's all in there. Maybe I don't think it's everything that Willa Cather wrote, but it's a big. It's it's much of what's left that we haven't looked at, right? So 
I'm going to get to that at some point. I, I, will, I will seek out and purchase that, that volume at some point. But I don't know if it'll be in this series I'm doing on 20th century women writers. It may be down the road that I'll get to that story. So for um, what's coming up next? What's coming up next? Well, um, I actually only have three volumes here in, in China. I'll, I'll get some more in October when I go back to Taiwan. I have Mary McCarthy, and I have this, Willa Cather, of course, and I have The Futurist Female. That's not a normal, regular Library of America um, publication. The print's different. Um, so 100 pages of that isn't 100 pages of this, but whatever. Who cares? Um, it's actually 25 short stories, all women science fiction writers. There's actually 26 uh, women science fiction writers represented in there because one of the stories is co-written. Um, famous voices like C.L. Moore and some other voices, you know, not so famous, not so well known by science fiction readers. So I, I've wanted to get back to science fiction for a while. I was actually thinking of doing the series of 1950s science fiction. They have two volumes. It's really good. Um, but those are men, right? So mostly, I think maybe one's by a woman. Mostly those are men. Anyways, uh, this volume really, which was just published, really offers me an opportunity to do something a little bit different and carry on this, this series of, of 20th, century, uh, 20th century girls series. So we're going to uh, take those 25 stories in about five chunks. Uh, for, there's a, the volume's about 500 pages. So I'm just going to break it up. Um, and I'll let you know which stories I read when I, when I do those, do those, do those um, episodes. Um, what's coming up first? C.L. Moore's in the first one. Her Jiri of, of or Jirel of Jory, one of her Jirel of Jory stories is there. Um, some really good ones. So I look forward to talking about those, those stories. So the next five episodes will be that Futures Female book, and I'll give you my overall feelings about that anthology. Um, but it's, it's quite good. It's, it's quite useful. Um, and then when that's done, we'll, we'll go jump to Mary McCarthy's novels from the 40s and, and 50s. And some of her other writings, Groves of Ac Academe, Company She Keeps, and, that, and those kinds of novels. So a lot of great stuff coming up. So, uh, But for now, if there's any thoughts you have on Safira and the Slave Girl or of any of Willa Cather's writings, please send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or, uh, or um, just leave a comment below. Um, you know, there's probably a lot I missed, a lot I misinterpreted. You know, I tend to look at these stories in one way. So I, I appreciate hearing from other points of view. So uh, that's all for now. Uh, thanks for listening and for downloading this podcast. I will see you next time with The Futurist Female, 25 short stories by women science fiction writers from America. Mother was a raised away down in Texas Where the Jensen weed and the Sanders grow We'll feed you up on prickly pear foil and then send you open to old Idaho. Whoopie pie, I owe, get along, you little doggy. It's your misfortune, then, man, am I? Whoopie pie, I owe.